your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks, two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Olivier Lacan. Hello. Yeah, I had to pull my uh, high school French out. I was really good, actually. I was really impressed. I was about to say, I was ready to correct you, but it was just like perfect. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a quarter French, so we'll chalk it up to my grandma. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> it doesn't impact me a whole lot, so it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, we've known each other for a while. I'm, I'm a little curious before we get into the episode. You want to just update people on where you're at these days? Because you were on the show a few months ago, but... Yeah. I currently work for Pluralsight, remotely from France. I work on the Pluralsight projects team. So like, it's not quite like what CodeSchool used to be because it's a section of CodeSchool we actually built out before CodeSchool shut down about a year and a half ago, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, think of it, if you know Exorcism from Katrina Owen, it's kind right. of a version of that that is more in between what CodeSchool was, like this interactive challenge-based kind of learning thing and mm-hmm. the actual doing, like actually building the project that you would build. But it's right. chunked up step by step. Like that's the similar way that to exorcism. So we're doing basically porting that uh, from Code School to uh, to Pluralsight, and it's been churning. Basically, we've been iterating on it and adding new things. We don't quite have the same projects that we had on on uh, Code School, but it's really cool because we we get to basically have a big team completely dedicated to projects. Whereas when it was Code School, it was just uh, an offshoot idea that we mm-hmm. wanted to do for uh, for students. Nice. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And it seems like Pluralsight's, you know, finding new ways to present information to people. So Yeah, it, I feel like it was some somewhat necessary for them because I don't think they needed to go into into that like interactive learning, hands-on learning is what they call them. And I think mm-hmm. it's really cool because they basically have the interactive courses from Code School, not all the same ones, like new ones that are rebuilt. That's another team that a bunch of people from Code School work on. And then projects. Because I, I don't know, there's different. Everybody has a different way of learning, right? There's people right. who learn through podcasts, books, you know, mm-hmm. just trying stuff out, manuals, you know, the old ways. And then there's people who just like like to watch videos and just stick. I I'm completely unable to do that. So for me, it's really cool to be working on something that's more catered towards catered to the kinds of learning styles that I like, uh, mm-hmm. more hands on, maybe more like guided. Because sometimes if you try something that you have no concept of, it's kind of nice to have like bound boundaries and kind of like the the jargon is kind of catered, like corralled yeah. in for you, I guess. Yeah, I'm one of those people that I'll go watch a six hour course, <laughs> and about an hour and a half in, I'm off playing with it. <laughs> you know, it, You're it's way more in the background. Yeah. Or I, I turned it off. <laughs> it takes me three minutes. I, I probably have attention disorder problems. I should get diagnosed, but I, I can do three minutes and then three minutes. And I'm like, oh, I want to try this in my browser. Oh, oh, let me install the CLI for this. And it's just like, yeah. I'm, I'm impossible when it comes to long form you know, like course content. Mm-hmm. This is the same in school. This is a problem. <laughs> in, in school, I got bored, but that was different. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. 
So, uh, so yeah, so you are on episode, I just want to throw this out there so people can go find it and, and hear how smart you are. Ruby Rogues episode 364 that was re- uh, released in May of 2018. Mm-hmm. And you talked about why won't bundle update. So yep, I've, I've never had that, that pain myself. I'm just No, kidding. I'm trying to think. I think they fixed that since there's been a lot of really incremental like updates to Bundler mm-hmm. uh, and it's getting merged in Ruby in 2.6. So there's a bunch of really good stuff coming through. Not necessarily stuff that I've done or stuff that I've like asked people to do, but it's really exciting to see just in that short time. Like it's been, what, seven months, six months? Mm-hmm. It's it's um it's just so many really really good things. I just noticed the other day that, for instance, when you have unbuilt native extensions, you get a warning now. For instance, that's the thing that wasn't oh, nice. there before. It would just not work. And now, it, if you happen to require a gem that has native extensions that are not installed, it'll just be like, I can't do this, which is really great. It's just tiny little frustrations getting removed. Yeah, I mean, as as seamless and as thoughtless and painless as they can make it, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, we're here to talk about you and not about uh, Bundler. So yeah, let's let's dive on in and talk about you. How did you get into programming? So it's funny because I was thinking about this and uh, I think frustration is how I got into programming. <laughs> the the, the way that me. I've heard... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or like, like anger-driven development, like things like that. Yeah. Like, I remember seeing... I don't know if it was David Heinemar Hansen or a bunch of other people like that talking about people who weren't necessarily... They didn't have an, an Amiga or like something they could program with when they were young, but they were uh-huh. they were savvy enough. So I think I was savvy enough. Like I knew how to program VCR, I knew how to use a computer. I had a right. computer in my room because my my dad was kind of like tinkering with computers and stuff like that, and we did that together. So of course there was the bedrock of like the nerdiness, the computer nerdiness that most people with like the enough privilege to have someone who can afford a computer at home. Mm-hmm. So my dad gifted himself <laughs> for Christmas and I am so happy. I to like your dad on a, on a podcast because my dad, no, I mean, it's, you think you like him, but then you realize it's beautiful and also horrible at the same time. He did not trust anybody in the family to give him a gift good enough. So he gifted <laughs> himself a, it's a I love it. compact, you know, remember those huge, heavy, like cast iron gray compacts from uh... 1994. Basically, they were like, they look like very flat rectangular boxes and they weighed like a million pounds or five kilos because let's use kilos, but they were huge. They were very heavy and everything was separate. And I remember my dad installing Windows 3.1, I'm pretty sure, or 3.11, one of those Mm -hmm. on it. And then the only thing I could do is just play games, right? So I didn't do what most people I hear the story of uh, who are into computer science these days who uh, got a computer instantly, they learned like basic or they learned like visual basic or something like that. Like they just became instantly savvy with how to make the computer do things. I just use the computer as a user. So it's very much like, I want games. I want to click on these icons and pretend I'm doing something interesting mm-hmm. because I was, I don't know, I was 10 maybe yep. when that happened. 94, yeah, that was 10-ish, 9. And... You're young. I'm pretty young. Well, I mean, I, if I was 14, you're not that young. Anyway, right. not that. Yeah, there you go. But at the time, I was like at the, at the kind of it, at the edge of not quite teenager, right? So mm-hmm. I didn't have, I didn't, I, I didn't feel like an incentive to to network or go have communities or things like that. I didn't have an urge to rebel or something yet. All I had was uh, the biggest memory I have is I had long email exchanges with my best friend at the time. And they were amazing letters. That's the that's the thing I remember. Like power user level stuff was only like trying to install Mario is missing or Day of the Tentacle. <laughs> uh, like these amazing X Wing. I think I had 
So that's the stuff that I did. And that's a lot less like street credit than a lot of the stuff that I hear from other people. Because like people who grew up with computers usually have like really intense stories. Like it's not until I realized that no one else in my class in middle school had a computer and maybe one other person uh-huh. uh, that I realized like we started having in France, we had these things called technology. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm French. I know it's not super obvious, but so I grew up in, in Paris and in middle school, they started introducing these technology classes and all it was, was like, Oh, we need these kids to be a little savvy with computers. Cause like they'll have jobs with computers soon. So they had it's like classes. because School systems are now looking at, do we provide a programming curriculum? Yeah. Yeah, and it's tricky because oh, yeah. at the time that was like, no, what? That's way too advanced. We're not going to do yeah. that. Right? Kids can't do that. No, no, they're not. No, they they can reprogram everything in your house, but they can't do that, right? You don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. But the few people who trusted kids, right, were usually those teachers. They were like mm-hmm. the the radio ham radio operator guy. Yeah, the lady who was really into electronics. Like they, mm-hmm. all these people, like the cool people that you want, like the, the, the radio, what is it? The classroom radio guy from stranger things, like who lets kids like try. Oh yeah. That's exactly who these people were. So one of them, I think in middle school was like, it started teaching us about Excel and word. I'm like, dude, I've been just like, I have nothing important to do in Excel. And I I know how to use (laughs) word, but it was a word processing. The idea of word Mm -hmm. processing as a kid is so boring. It's like C-SPAN times a hundred. So you don't want to deal with that. But so you just, I just messed with the settings. For instance, I would change the background. I guess that was like hacking. Uh I guess. The crappy hacking version. You feel like a script kitty. But at the time, I just didn't know anything else. It's only when I I failed my last year of middle school for many reasons, mostly my own. And and I had to go to a different school because my school was getting rezoned to like a worse district or something. And so I went to a different school and the teacher there was even better. Like he was an even more uh, an advocate of like, yeah, you should learn technology. And he, one day he comes in and he's like, we're going to make websites. And nice. we all look at him like, no, you, see, you think nice. Everyone in the class was like, this is stupid. I don't want to do that. And then I thought like, why would I make a website? Who cares about my website? Like right. I knew about maybe four websites <laughs> at the time. And uh, I used, you know, bad search engines to find them. And so I couldn't think of anything. He was like, okay, well, there has to be something you really care about. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I was really into real-time strategy games at the time. So I was really into uh, Age of Empire, SimCity, Caesar, right. like getting more obscure, but like all of these kind of like build a little thing. And it's like, it's, you know, turn, turn-based or, or real-time was really cool. Civilization is the right. turn-based version. So I was really into that. And I was into it enough that I wanted to talk to other people about it and then let them know how cool it was. And that's all he needed to do. And that's, that's how I got into programming. Basically, because someone gave me the idea that I could share something with the world and it didn't matter if like three people cared. As long mm-hmm. as one person cared, it was worth doing. And there's I, still to this day, this is a lesson that I see people like have to relearn. There's people all over the open source world and people who are like new hires, even people who are experienced and have never blogged or never spoken at a conference. Right. Because they think like, I have nothing to add. As if, you know, you need credentials to have, like to get credentials. It's so weird. It's like this, anyway. And so he made us use front page, pretty sure. And we made a one page website (laughs) and it was terrible. Mine was called, it's terrible because now everybody's going to be able to look it up. But mine was called Stratego, not after the board game because I was completely not aware of the board game. Yeah. I played that as a kid. 
there you go. A lot of people in the US played it. And for me, it was just, I love coming up with names. One of the things that separates me from most computer science people is I love naming. And so I looked into strategy because I love strategy. And I tried to find words that were like Latin-based words derived from the word strategy. And I think mm-hmm. stratego was kind of like vaguely related to like someone on a, on a battlefield, like strategizing, whatever. Something. Right. And then I learned through a tutorial how to make, how to make a flaming logo. Because of course. Nice. <laughs> and I made my flaming logo out of papyrus with a sword that I cut out from... I think I googled. No, couldn't have because it was before 98. Oh, it might have been 98 actually. So I think I might have googled uh-huh. for a sword, like a cool little you know, fantasy-like uh-huh. sword. And uh, yeah, and I learned... So basically, every time I had to do something, I had no idea how to do it. So every moment was a moment of discovery. So I used front page for two minutes and then I got bored because it wasn't good enough. So I found a shareware mm-hmm. copy of Dreamweaver and then I found a, you know, a trial copy for Photoshop that I probably got a crack from somewhere on some <laughs> not super legal website because I was like, I was tired of not being able to use this. Yes, save for web was not a full feature when I got uh, Photoshop. It was Photoshop 5.0 and 5.5 uh-huh. introduced save for web GIFs and JPEGs. And so you could, that's the first one where you could optimize, I guess, for like, I think, I think now it's called just optimize for web. Uh-huh. Um, Anyways, that's the first thing. And just to make that stupid, you know, logo, it was kind of like the Montessori of the web. It was this idea of like, well, I want to pick what I'm going to learn because I need to learn it because mm-hmm. today I'm interested in this new thing. I had not been the best students in, in school. Like I was kind of like a mediocre plus student. I didn't really mm-hmm. work really hard because nothing was super fascinating, but that was. So it was yeah. the first time I would just went down and learn more in, I don't know, a month or something. And that's how I got into it. Really early on, it was just mostly a little bit of graphic design, crappy, a little bit of web design, but terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was using frames on that firm, first website. <laughs> Everybody used frames. Yeah. And then do you remember the frustration thing? I think frustration comes out of making web pages and realizing, oh, I'm making them the same menu. So the same list of links at uh-huh. the top on every page. So every time I change anything on those, I have to go through every page to change it. Yep. And then instantly I was like, how can I not do that? Frame sets. Yep. You can have one frame that contains the menu and then pages that are part of the frame and those are the only pieces that reload. Like, mm-hmm. that, It's almost really fancy when you think about frame sets. They're, I bet you, you can compare them to like React components or something and find them like interesting. Anyway, well, so I learned that. Yeah. Back in the day, they, they kind of were because it was, okay, load this you know, it was a component. Yeah. It was just another web page in a frame. Yep. It felt like a playlist, like those M3U playlists. It's a, it's a file that tells you to download other files. It's just right. like, oh yeah, there's nothing in this one, but you got to get these two other HTML documents, the header and the uh-huh. menu. And then the only thing that actually scrolls is the big centerpiece yep. HTML document. Yeah. So that was, that was the early stages. And then eventually, of course, I think the seed of, the seed of optimization is what made, made me a programmer down like five years later. Just this idea of just like, I want to reuse something or I want to dynamicize or make something dynamic. So mm-hmm. I don't... Laziness, basically. Frustration <laughs> Or what yep. led me to SHTML. You could do includes in SHTML. Can't remember how and why. I don't even... Was it server-based? I think it was server-based. The remember. server was told to, inc- to inject another piece of HTML in a specific spot. 
So you needed a compatible server to do that. Right. And then I use PHP and so free PHP hosting or something like that. And then uh-huh. I made I made a new version of that same gaming website that no one visited except for my friends. And then I found, I think, a TV show, I'm going to say it, uh, called Dark Angel mm-hmm. uh, with Jessica Alba and lots of sci-fi, kind of like X-Files, but not quite good enough. And I made, a, TV, I made a, a website about it and then I made a forum and then the TV show hit France a year after uh-huh. it came out in the US and it was huge. It was like thousands of people were visiting my website when I oh, had wow. friends and family visiting the previous one. And I was like, oh my life, <laughs> like, ah, how do I deal? You're I think famous it, now, yeah. Yeah, it really feels like when you're a teenager, yeah, you're like, does. oh, a thousand people are visiting my web, like my, my bookmark, uh, what is it called? My guest book. It's getting mm-hmm. signed by so many people. And my counter, my fake yes, counter that's updating that. page load <laughs> is updating like crazy. And my Swiss web host is shutting me down because... Or my French web host, one of those, shut me down because I had too much traffic. Like right. the day it premiered, people Googled it too much or like searched it too much that they, it, the website just went offline because they were like, you're not paying for enough bandwidth. Right. That's it. That's the beginning. That's awesome. Yep. I love it. So, uh, so you get into this, you're building websites. How do you get from there to Ruby? Cobbling together, pasting like JavaScript snippets. You know, I don't know if you remember how many JavaScript snippet websites there were. In oh, yeah. 2001, 2000, basically. That's when that, you know, that happened. You say cobbling together and then you talk about these JavaScript websites like they're old news and nobody does it anymore. But people go and pull stuff off Stack Overflow oh, all the time. Now, We're not doing anything different. It's just that the technology is better. Oh, it's true. It has. I mean, it feels more legit even to go to Stack Overflow because like you, it's more like a community. Like It's like a, a therapy, right? It's the therapy session. Everyone goes in a circle and goes like, how do I do this? I can't do it. And then someone has the solution. You're like, oh my God, you made my life better. At the time, it was like websites that look super scammy like DHTML websites where you could like copy snippets yeah. and a bunch of them had like ads snuck in uh-huh. because it was job, like early JavaScript, I guess ECMAScript or was it JScript? I, I forget. It was JavaScript. It was. Yeah. JScript like, was the Windows yeah, you're right. version of it. There you go. And never worked in the different computers. So you had the same kind of like use this on Netscape or something. But after that, was the the phase where that website had success. So I had reasons to reach for outside of my area of expertise, which at the beginning is almost like every minute you just learn right. new things. But eventually I ran into things I couldn't do my own. Uh, I, I needed a... I think I needed a news feed. And I started looking into PHP scripts for news feeds. Mm-hmm. Usually there were text-based database systems. So text storage on the server. It was terrible. Like everything was so bad. And the only reason I think they were popular is because you didn't need to buy a database server right. instance or something. And they routinely corrupted data, string encoding issues all the time. Because I was in Europe, so we had like oh, yeah. encoding. I think it was Latin one or something like that. Uh-huh. People working on the website pasting stuff in, and they didn't realize that they had like a different character encoding or something like that. So we we'd have tons of issues like that. So I had. I think a Swiss guy was helping me. Someone who was also interested in the same TV show was helping me with the PHP stuff or the the, the SQL stuff, because I think we ended up having a, like a SQL backend, and he built a CMS basically for this website. Okay. I remember at the time how much wizardry that was uh-huh. building a CMS. Wow, it wasn't even called a CMS; it was just like PHP my something. And yeah, that, so at the time I could sort of decipher it uh, SQL statements. 
uh-huh. and like echo PHP crap inside of a template. And that's about it. Like I just didn't really understand. And through just, like you said, learn by doing experimentation, like failure, all, editing code on the server from the FTP client inside of Dreamweaver to make it like, you know, change and then breaking the entire website, receiving... I never did that, ever. <laughs> I'm sure you didn't. No, no, ne- never happened you? to me. Never? Really? Like swear? Oh, oh, I did all the time. <laughs> I really felt like somehow there was a track I missed, like the track of like learning, learning to version things properly. But yeah, no. Yeah, you miss a tag or something and half the page disappears. Yeah. And you would go to bed and you wake up the next morning and everyone's like, hey, we can't say we can't sign into the website or the you know, the form. I think it was, yeah, we we started using PHP BV version 1.3, I think. Uh-huh. And then I remember the migration from 1.3 to 2.0 and not understanding anything and just like editing right. those PHP scripts and having no clue. Because again, I think at the time I was in between the end of, yeah, I was in high school. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was in high school and very uninterested in high school. And then I went to college. And, and in college, basically, I did a lot of that. I started having... I was helping a nonprofit in France right. that was supporting TV shows. They were trying to get TV shows recognized as like a, a, a seventh art, basically. Or eighth art. Like the supposedly movies are the seventh you know, art. There's painting and music and all these things. And, okay. and they wanted... The recognition, which now we have, like Netflix and everything like that, like TV shows are a big deal. But at the time, it was a joke in France, and they were treated poorly. So they they advocated for, you know, authors and uh, and and writers and directors to treat them as real pieces of art rather than just like stuff to fill the airwaves. Mm-hmm. And they needed a webmaster. <laughs> Important keyword. <laughs> so that's when I moved on to like small town. I don't know, a thousand people maybe on a, uh-huh. on a big night to like a bigger website called... Oh, this is going to sound so wrong. I'm going to spell it out because it's going to smell it smell bad if I say that. So it is A-N-N-U-S-E-R-I-E-S.com. It still exists to this day. And I'm pretty sure the, the design is made by me. It's the last design I updated. But it's, it's basically IMDB for TV shows in French. That's right. it. And that was PHP. My sequel, it was built by a, a guy that I, Nicolas, I think his name, yeah, Nicolas Bevernage. So it's hard to understand in English, but this guy's a really good guy. And he, it, it's the first programmer that I've ever met that I saw in real life type on a computer and turn his head and talk to me as he was typing. So this <laughs> is when I realized there's like, it's kind of like an RPG, like you see level 15 or level uh-huh. 100 when you're level two and you're like, I will never get there. I don't I know, right? <laughs> this is... This man is a magician. I don't understand how it happens. He was a particular guy. He was he was yep. clearly really good. I didn't know if you had to be as particular as he was to to be as good at what he did. I didn't know if normal people who are not geniuses could do this. So it was kind of intimidating. I feel like I, around that time, a lot of the people who did this stuff, who did like database level admin, yes, yeah, sysadmin, and also like just server-side languages and database stuff, Felt like there was a lot of stuff to couple together. So it's only from experimenting on this website that he built, breaking it, that I started getting a little bit more comfortable with server-side stuff. But I could tell really quickly that I was not going to be as good as him on my own, Mm -hmm. that I needed other resources, other like support. And even though I hated school, I really did, other than just a, a place for me to have space to learn something I wanted to learn. I basically started started searching around, I think in 2006 or seven for a school to guide me through mm-hmm. 
The not the computer science part. There's two schools in Paris that are very famous. One is called EPITA, E-P-I-T-A, which is more computer science, like hard computer science. And then EPITECH, E-P-I-T-I-C-H, is the more programming, web framework stuff, more app applied computer science. But they seem like math head land. And I was a terrible math student, really bad at math. I almost failed graduating from high school because of math. So I just, it didn't feel like a world that was like a, I was allowed in. Right. And I remember hearing a DHH talk about the same thing, which is interesting because I never thought that someone like him or people who are like renowned programmers uh -huh. throughout the world would have gone through the same thing. I thought I was just one of those like exceptions. And then you start looking around and realizing, no, there's a ton of people like you who thought, no, this is not, this world does not belong. I don't belong in this world. Basically, it's too, right. you have to be a certain way to get in. It took me a while. Couldn't really find any school in France that was like that. Eventually, I ended up through a huge series of circumstances that would take far too long to explain. Finding a school in, uh, in Florida called Full Sail University, who, which originally was de designed as a, like a trade school for film students and, and audio recording, audio okay. engineering students in the 70s. And it's kind of like it has this rep of being a diploma mill when really what it does, it's, it's like the profit for-profit school for sure, but also very oriented for trade school level stuff. So it teaches mm -hmm. you very specific, very highly demanded or sometimes not so much uh, skills. So for the web stuff, they had just started a web program, I think in 2007 or eight, right about the time I was looking. That wasn't too much like most of the French things I had seen that were like super flash heavy which was uh, marketing departments, you know, oh, yeah. banner ads, which I did some in France, but I, I didn't want to be a banner ad designer or programmer. And uh, their curriculum was really cool. It had some web standard stuff and I had started to become savvy to that, like web standard HTML, CSS. I, think, I don't think HTML5 was proposed at the time because it was 2008 or seven, but it might have been drafted around that time. Like uh -huh. HTML, the, the spec might have been drafted like right. throughout these years. So it started getting more serious and, and Flash was starting to get more and more flack. I think Steve Jobs stand against Flash was 2010 when the iPad came out. So the bad feelings about, yeah, something like that, nine or 10. So yeah, it's, it's just, they had a little bit of Flash action script, but also they had a ton of, they had PHP, they had, they, they would teach you web standards, they would teach you design stuff and, and user-centered design and user experience, which at the time was very impressive because few people talked about that. And I learned all the things that I, I, I couldn't teach myself, basically. For, I think it's a two-year accelerated program, which is bachelor level hours, but in two years. And then you, oh, wow. learned, you learned the entire gamut of web production, the way that they had kind of like waterfall web production, but they kind of got wise to the agile world while we're in the program. And they teach you the basics of graphic design, illustration, user-centered design, web standards, and then they start into programming. And so really the, the how did you get into programming leads up to that moment where I had my first programming class. I think it was Introduction to Object-Oriented Programming. Yep. And I college. failed that class twice. Oh, wow. Even though it was the most you know, comfortable learning environment I'd ever have because I picked it. Mm -hmm. and, and I loved everything and I had a reason to study and everything. I got super intimidated and I failed. I failed that really bad. I went to see Avatar uh, the day before the final with my friend, <laughs> with my friend Zach because I was panicking. And we didn't have a reference material book, I think. And we were, I, just, I, was just, I was just completely swimming in, in jargon and 
right. by everything. Like I didn't understand what getters and setters did. Mm-hmm. I think people explained to me 15 times, like I think the teacher, Sean Bernath, really, really good guy, explained to me like, this is what it does. And, and it just scared me. I don't know. It's just like this, why do you call it a setter? What is its setting? It's like, it's a property. It's just changing <laughs> right. the, the internal property. And it's like, everything about these terms sounded artificial to me. It sounded like made up words of computer science. And it still does to this day. A mm-hmm. lot of computer science terms sound like people decided to make smart sounding terms to explain things that are easier to understand if you don't use them. Almost. Oh, people would never do that. <laughs> it's never been done like that in other industries. So, Right. Like, I think the best example I have is transclusion. Right. <laughs> All it is, is inclusion, right? You're including uh-huh. a thing inside of another thing. It's the, the concept, the basic concept of hypertext. Uh-huh. And somehow someone in computer science land decided, I think it's someone very smart and I'm not, you know, trying to dish it out with them. But it's like, what do you think people are going to think when you start like throwing out big jargon words like that? Yes, maybe if you study this for a living or your research for that makes sense. But uh, as, a, as an unapplied artist or practitioner, it's so scary the first time around. So yeah, I failed initially. So this is, I want to I want to end on I failed so for all the people out there. If they ever hear this, to th- thinking like, oh, maybe they, they think I know what I'm doing, <laughs> that I completely tanked the first one. It, it took a lot of trying and eventually I got it. But it took, I think three months later, I think I took that class over one or two times until I, I it gelled. It just made sense. I started understanding like, you know, class level static stuff and instance level stuff and how, you know, data, data can be stored in an instance or it could be statically stored in everything and everything has access to it. But it, it took a lot of metaphors. And I think the person who broke that for me, like broke that blockage for me was Jason Matson. Sorry. I think he works in, he does React stuff or Vue stuff now. So he was my object-oriented teacher, full-on object-oriented, like the concepts of that. And he just used really, really good metaphors. And I think that's the thing that the gap between introducing or, or welcoming beginners into our industry is, is learning ways to break down concepts in ways that are relatable, just like math has to be broken down concepts. Right. Like You don't do personal finance at 16, right? That's not relatable, like carrying over things and like deductions and, and ranges and cumulative like stock and things like that don't impact you. But if you find examples that are precisely like they talk, they speak to you. Right. It was, it was organisms. Like I think you use the common like bird, you know, you, an instance of bird can be a specific different bird if you inherit from this basic bird instance mm-hmm. or something like that. But also just right. like the, the, the cells in the body talking to each other, which actually is the basis of, of object-oriented programming. This idea of just like mimicking the, mm-hmm. the way the body communicates. Yeah. Like the cells talk to each other. They have clear boundaries. They just send electrical signal to, to each other or to the brain. That just, boom, everything suddenly made sense. It's interesting because I find that metaphors are essentially, uh, how do I put it? It's, it's a way of telling a story. Yeah. In a shorter, you know, and, and we're wired for stories. People are just wired. Yes, absolutely. So it, it makes it a lot easier. It feels like a campfire when you do that. Yeah. You're all sitting around a campfire and it's just breaking down, like passing yeah. on wisdom. Yep. Yep. I also just want to call out, I mean, you mentioned, you know what, I failed. And it's, it's funny because I've met people who will talk about how they've never failed. And those people, <laughs> they're either extremely boring or they're bored. <laughs> Careful. Right? They're going to have a guest who just like, just happened to be lucky, maybe. 
And then, and then maybe they, they you know, they, they were lucky enough to not fail. And maybe that's, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if, if I, if I, if I'm not failing, I'm not trying hard enough. So that's a good point. Yeah. yeah pushing yourself is definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, I wanted to get a little bit into your history with Ruby. How did you, how did you find Ruby? So there's one name. His name is Andrew Smith. And I want him to one day listen to this podcast and, and, and know that I remember that he's the reason I got into Ruby. Uh, Andrew, what's all your fault? Yep. His, his uh, handle on Twitter is Full Sailor. So you can just go like, just say hi to him because he's really cool. He's a really nice guy. And mm-hmm. he, he was at Full Sail, the same school a year ahead of me. Okay. He had started, I think, with the, the, the first students they had. So it's probably a class of three people or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we were a class of two people when I started. So we met in the hallway. No, we didn't. We met on Twitter because I opined about their, their croissant selection at the Starbucks on campus. <laughs> and, or, I, or I was looking for croissants. Or I was feeling homesick or something. And he was like, hey, you should try the Starbucks. And I was like, yeah, I did. Actually, they're pretty good, surprisingly. And then we started talking on Twitter and I realized, oh, his handle is Full Sailor. Like literally, he's like he's got the school. It's one of those like kind of like elected officials who name themselves mayor something, and then right. the mayor anymore. He's not been at full sale for a long time, but he's still full sailor to me. And then we met in the hallways while he was having more advanced class than classes than we and my friend Zach and I were having. Zach and I go, and we had conversations, and we were doing the CSS classes. He was in the advanced object oriented programming and server side language stuff. And he'd been an Apple nerd uh, most of his life, uh, as far as I know. I started on the Windows side, so I didn't get all the niceties of Mac and you know having a Unix-based system on my machine. So I couldn't really do all these things. So he was kind of like a natural, mm-hmm. and he was into Ruby. He was into Ob- Objective C and Ruby, I think, at the time. And he mentioned off the cuff. I think we were talking about less CSS, and yeah. he said, "Well, have you heard of SAS and Hamel?" And we were like, what is that? And he showed us the websites for those, those two projects. So Hamel is just a, yeah, it's a templating engine for, for Ruby that turns in stuff into HTML, basically. It's just like, right. nicer. I'm sure people are familiar with it. There and are JavaScript SAS, versions of all of these. Exactly. There's like stylus, there's like all these things. Mm-hmm. And then for the SAS, it's, it was basically just a, a non-shitty version of less <laughs> to, be, uh, to be mean and mean-spirited. <laughs> But it's just like, so SAS is just better than less in so many respects. At the time, it was like neck and neck with, with less. But he showed us these things. And I was like, oh, this is really beautiful. Not only is it beautiful and, and really interesting to use, and it solves problems that I have as a student, like because it's just really verbose to write sometimes HTML or CSS. And there's like some, some nice cities that you can make functions in SAS that I didn't know. I was just learning about functions. So it's just right. really in, interesting. And I, I think CSS just got functions. Like maybe a few years ago, maybe. If it even... I think there's something... There's variables at least. I think we have color variables. Yeah, we're starting to get into variables yeah. and stuff. Which That's, was super nice in SAS. The eight, nine years ago, right? That it felt like future tech. And he showed us the websites for these things first immediately landing on the Hamel website and the SAS websites as a, as a trained webmaster slash web designer person who thought they were more designery than mm-hmm. programmery. Instantly, I was like, wow, these people have taste. Like there's good <laughs> It's like, you know, when you, you get a bad feeling about someone's you know, business card or, or you've been uh-huh. a bad feeling about a web, you go to a website for a doctor and it's like horrible and you're like, maybe I'll use the other doctor because their website's better and I feel like I can send them an email. That's how it felt. It felt like they had tried to explain what technology was about. They had tried to just be friendly to the eye. They had tried to be uh-huh. like just, you know, tweet tasteful a little bit. 
And it felt like as a designer, there was no better... I got that feeling right away. There was, there was, there was the only uh, programming community I've ever felt got design. Right. I didn't see it from Python. I didn't see it from PHP. I didn't see it from ActionScript. Definitely not. But I got it from that. And it was a community that wasn't like backed by a huge company. So I was even right. more surprising. It was an open source, you know, completely like free to enter community that was design savvy. And I went to Ruby Gems, I think, shortly after because I had to install, uh, I think, Gem install SaaS or something like that. And right. I remember thinking like, wow, even that website, the, the package manager couldn't, no idea what it was. I didn't know much of how to use it. But I remember thinking, what I think it was a ThoughtBot design at the time. There's like uh -huh. that big red one with... Uh, like it looked like metal and stuff like that. It was really cool. And that's how thing that got me in there. And I think we shortly after meeting, we started doing projects using Hamel and SAS just for fun. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew, Zach, and I started a, a little company called Clever Code, where we did like small projects uh, while we were still students there. Right. So we did one for we did one for a restaurant. We did a little like a, an ordering website for a restaurant. And on that project, Andrew was the 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 backend Rails person. And we were both front-end developers. So I, did, I think I did a lot of design. And then Zach did a lot of design with me or JavaScript and stuff like that. And we were using Rails because Andrew picked mm -hmm. the thing. So we were using Ruby and Rails. And really, so I didn't really get to spend that much time in Ruby before I, I got into Rails. A lot of people say like, oh, it was the first one. Is it better to start with Ruby or Rails? You know? Right. And for me, it was just like, well, I needed to get something done. I wasn't there to just like... <laughs> shop around for programming languages and like see, oh, let me see how they, the threading works in Ruby before I decided. No, it wasn't like educated programmer comparison shopping. It was like, I have something I need to do right away. We're going to be paid like nothing. So we don't have time to... We need something productive right away, right? Right. And then Andrew took care of most of the... I think it was the Rails 3 project just before while I was still in beta or something like that. So it was rough around the edges. But... The interactions I had with Ruby were mostly bundle install. I think I don't even know if I used bundle exec. I know I remember how confused I was by bundle exec. I remember just trying to rake install things or rake db migrate things and it wouldn't work and it would yell at me because it was the wrong version of rake. Right. I didn't have a Ruby version manager. I didn't know what it was and what why I needed one. Yep. All of these things were valuable like frustration new beginner to the community frustrations, but th that's the, my first things. I really, it was completely utilitarian. I didn't pick Ruby as a, oh, ah, like that better than this other. It just felt right. It felt productive. It felt right. And it was like through Rails, of course. And that's, it's only after that I started noticing, oh, Ruby is cool too. Like it's, it exists within this ecosystem of Ruby. Like all these things wouldn't exist without Ruby. So, yep, that's how I got into it. And I think, it took a whole year after that for me to actually get on my own and start making my own Rails apps and learning Ruby syntax and learning Ruby inheritance systems, like all the things that make Ruby Ruby. Uh -huh. and, and then the crazy thing is by, that, by the point that I had started to do Ruby on my own and Rails on my own, I was no longer a designer. Like I didn't think of myself as a, as a web designer or webmaster anymore. It's just like it was so much power, I guess, but not in the like power over people. It was just like... I could remove frustration like Magneto can, basically. Yeah. Just like I could just make things, make problems disappear faster because I knew the whole system, not just the front end. Yeah. Makes sense. Yep, that's so, it. So, uh, yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about Code School because people have heard of that. 
How did you wind up getting involved uh, in code school? Same thing. So I was in Orlando. The The school was in Winter Park, which is a neighborhood of Orlando, so the, the uh-huh. little north of Orlando. And and in Orlando, there's a company there called Envy Labs. Still exists. Yep. Still tons of great people that are working there. And at the time I was in school, they were... Uh, 2000, it's called 2009 to 11. And uh-huh. 2010 is when they came out with Rails for Zombies. Right. Uh, they were doing like, you know, conference circuit. I'm sure you've been there. And they were trying to do teaching sessions for like basic workshop sessions. And they were finding that setup was a problem. A bunch of people didn't have the right things installed. So they thought, all right, let's just use the same kind of stuff that was hot at the time. This kind of like, let's do it in the browser. That way people don't have to. Right. I think Heroku had been doing idea. Cloud9 might have been around at the time. It's just like this yeah. idea of doing stuff in the browser got more feasible. So they did that. And they initially called it... I don't know if anybody said this publicly before. I'm sure they have. But it was initially... Greg might have. Rails Barbecue was the name. (laughs) (laughs) This is because... uh, Well, I don't know if it was a naming problem. Probably it was a naming problem. So I think it might have been Eric Allum who who thought of that name. Or maybe Greg. I don't know. Both of them. So it's called Rails Barbecue. And that was the prototype name. And then eventually they, they renamed it Rails for Zombies. Probably because designers and people who have good ideas for names... Uh-huh. came in. They're like, this is way more memorable. And they, they beta tested that Rails for Zombies as a single entity before even Kutsuko was around Yeah, in September 2009 or 10. I think it might have been 9. because I, 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 I remember, old I remember when it came out, but I don't remember what year. I think it came out in 2000. I think it's 10. So it doesn't matter. But basically, they were Orlando Ruby Users Group. Uh, ORUG was run by mostly uh-huh. Envy Labs. Yeah. And one night they had a, a beta party like that uh, at the Ainge Built Building downtown Orlando, and I came in that night not knowing a lot about Rails. I had just started doing Rails tutorial by Marco Haro at the time. Yep, yep. And so I felt kind of ugh, not super, you know, good. And but but the tutorial was amazing. I was learning a ton of stuff. But when I tried out Rails for Zombies, of course, I'm like a bunch of people tried it. Is this this idea of watching a three to five minute video? telling you a concept and then applying it, which is very much what I loved at Full Sail. So uh-huh. Full Sail is this 30 minute to an hour long, maybe a little bit longer sometimes conference thing where the teacher teaches you about a concept. And then right after you had a lab, you didn't go home and study and then come back. You just applied it right away. And then you do more stuff overnight until the next day and you had another kind of topic the next day. So it's very much like, you know, learn, practice, learn, practice, learn, practice, which is exactly what was so good to me about Code School was because I'd have to follow along a long thing and then eventually practice. It was chunked up in in ways that my attention-deprived brain could just deal with. So the beta happened, and I think they launched Rust for Zombies maybe October, September 2010. Hacker News, you can probably find uh, the history. Uh, the history. But so that happened. A bunch of people told him, obviously, you have to do this for more languages and other things. They were like, oh, okay. Well, they made enough money. I think, they, no, that was free and sponsored, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rust for Zombies. And people said, well, you can make a bunch of money if you do this. And they were like, oh, can we? Oh, okay. So they basically got together, designed a subscription system. Not a subscription system. It was a once a, you, you'd buy it, just a right. single course. And launched in March 2010 or no, 11. No, it was definitely 11. So they launched a SuperConf in Miami, the, the actual beta of the Kutskull service. And they had three lessons or maybe two. There was Rails best practices. And there might have been jQuery, jQuery Air, a jQuery course. And that's oh, it. There was the Rails best practices. Yeah. That was the, 
that was the time where I had been studying Rails for six months and I felt like I, I started getting like good and Rails uh-huh. best practices was like gold. It was like when you read yeah. a blog post by someone like Nate Berkopic and you're like, oh my God, I've been doing this completely wrong. My memory management is completely wrong. And you know, you suddenly feel like, yes. And I graduated, I think three months later or something like that. And around that time, so we had been, we had met the NV Labs folks, Greg and Nate and everyone at a conference in Miami called the Future of Web Apps. Uh, with mm-hmm. Andrew was there. I actually drove down with him and I drove down <laughs> the day before one of my finals for that same course that I had failed. The second time I was supposed to pass that thing. So we met them and it basically we got to meet them there and we got to know each other. And uh, we did for them uh, as Clever Code, we worked on the Ruby Heroes website. Right. Back in 2010, I think, is that same, that same year or like the year... Yeah, just the year before Rust for Zombies came out, I think. Mm-hmm. So Andrew did unprompted, completely upgraded the the backend of that of that app to Rust three, which was super fresh at the time. And then we mm-hmm. did a whole really nice new design and everything. So basically, we got to know each other. Uh, there's a good relationship there. I think Greg sent us some 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 low end clients for us to work with because they they didn't have the budget to to work with Envy Labs and stuff like that. So it was really cool. And then eventually, I think Greg sent me an email saying like. Is it okay if I? I think because it was like, is it okay if I hire if I hire Andrew? Like, I really like the the work that he's done. So it's the, we kind of like started working with each other, and mm-hmm. uh, I think we did some contracting for them in the in 2010 or something like that on on other work because they need more work or something like that. And that relationship kept kept going until I think I had a I graduated, got a job somewhere else, and then within six months, the the kind of like the questions we would ask each other whenever we would hang out was like, why why aren't we working together? One of my friends, Adam Renzel, who was also at Full Sail, was kind of like thinking about Ruby and I was trying to shove it like, try this, this is really cool. This is amazing. You should try this. And then Greg asked me, I think in an email said like, I'm looking for an intern to work on Code School. We don't really have the resources to mm-hmm. dedicate a whole full hire on it. But if you know someone who could be a good intern, let me know. And I, I said like, Adam's amazing. He's right. more like senior, like long-term senior level, like a uh, programmer, but maybe he'll be down to try out as an intern, I'll, I'll let him know, by the way, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> P.S. Like, <laughs> I, I would kind of like to work with you on this thing. It's really cool. And then Gray was kind of taken aback because I already had a job. And I was like, no, this, this, this stuff is really interesting. It's mm-hmm. a kind of learning I love. It's a small company. It's completely bootstrapped. There's no investors, no messy business and stuff like that. I could see at the time, even though I was still like fresh, I could see a long, you know, a long journey ahead for, for code school. Right. So that's, that's how I got involved with that. And I think Adam was hired in December, 2011. And I started in January, 2012. Mm -hmm. So right after, and that was when code school, I think had the coffee script course came out, a sip of coffee script. I think we had another, it might've been another course before that between the two, maybe a CSS course came out. Yeah. in In the, in the winter we had a CSS course. So we started to have a more, a broader, um, catalog. And also we went from individual course purchase to subscription, which was way more sustainable for having people on board full-time, basically. So we could afford to have Adam and I working full-time on, on Code School on the back end and stuff like that. Nice. It's interesting hearing about how you got into it and then and, and how it all came about. Because I don't know if I've ever pressed Greg to get the backstory on it either. So... He might have. I think he's done a founder story that you can find on YouTube or something. Now okay. that it's it's not on Code School anymore because the, the site's down. But the it, it could be on Plural Site or he might have it somewhere on on YouTube. It's it's kind of interesting. It's just like this like 
founding the, the Envy Lab business. I think mm-hmm. he talks about that. He talks about code school like early days and stuff like that. But the, yeah, right after that, it was, I think we had maybe a handful of people working part-time on it as, as Envy Labs, as a consultancy was doing other things with client work. Right. Within six months, we had a team of, I think, 10 people working on it. Because it was just like, it's much easier to predict growth when you have a subscription model, of course. Right. And it's also easier to kind of like, you know, plan for the future rather than like once in a while, someone will work on it. Maybe if they have time and the consultancy yeah. has, you know, downtime or something like that. So it's just like, that was what, 2012, 13, 14, early 15. Uh, so we grew a bunch, right? There's, I think the max number of employees we had was 50 maybe. Mm-hmm. And then, and then we were acquired by Pluralsight, I think in, in early 2015, late 2014. And I think at, at the time, it's really interesting because between those years, it feels like a ton of time. And also as a Ruby developer, when you, you're growing, growing as the business is also kind of an infant is really interesting. So I feel like that's definitely scary when you're not quite super confident with your programming skills. Like you, you join a team where there's consultants. I thought like people like ThoughtBot and you know like experienced consultants who know what they're doing and they apply it. They solve many different problems every year. They don't solve the same product every year. So they have a lot of different kinds of domain experience and they've, they've solved that same billing issue five different ways. Right. So they have more context than you do, especially as a beginner. And so working with them was kind of like, it was kind of a cheat, but also kind of a terrifying thing. Because <laughs> like working with someone from Envy Labs, pairing with them on a code school feature, which we did a lot in the early days, was very much like, Oh, I hope they won't think I'm completely stupid uh, every time I say something. And it really, <laughs> when people are nice, that's not ever a problem. When people are good people, that's yeah. the thing that I think is very important to see. Like beginners, like you can think maybe like I have to power through like people treating me like I'm an idiot. But really to me, like if you're a beginner and not treated well, that's a very good telltale that the company's not good. It's not you. It's You should probably go find people who are better at supporting growth and people who learn stuff. Yep. Cool. Well, we've kind of run out of time. I want to keep talking. No, it's it's all good. Because it's just it's fascinating, you know, and it's some of the background, I'm like, I was there. And some of it I'm like, that's really that's yeah, really interesting. So yeah, there's so much in in and out stuff. And I mean there's also like, you know, lessons to learn from from all of these things. And I feel like everybody has a different lesson. And the problem is I don't want to be I don't want to be prescriptive about my story. Because the tons of it is complete sheer luck. Like the reason I think I hated off meeting Greg was because we were both on Guala in the same uh-huh. neighborhood in Orlando and we recognized each other. Like that's a, a yeah. tiny part of the story that I don't even mention because it's just so goofy. Yeah. But there's so much luck involved. There's just being there that day when they were doing Rails for Zombies demo mm-hmm. or like Beta Day. Like some, so many of these parts are completely like just jumping on an opportunity or even well, just having it. That's the thing, right? Is I talk to people and they're like, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know where to go. I don't and you know, you're saying, well, it was just luck. It wasn't luck. You went. Right. I went out of my comfort zone. Yeah. But and it also required right, it also required the mental state of being like not completely uh-huh. like just on the ground in a fetal position. I feel like yeah. if I had felt like some of the ways that I felt burned out, for instance, like when you're burned out. You just you don't want to go to a meetup. You don't want to go to a conference. You just feel like oh, the world is like terrifying. So I think 
finding buddies might be a good way to do this. Like finding accountability partners who could just like tell you, hey, where are we going to the meetup? It's kind of like the gym thing, right? Yep. You just find someone to kind of go with you. And yeah, it's a commitment for you, but also like they'll just like I have a, I play tennis on Mondays with some friends. And if they, I probably wouldn't do it as much if there weren't people to say like, hey, are we playing this week? It's just self-motivation sometimes tricky. Like, yeah, just like self-learning, right? I, I didn't get there just learning everything on my own. And I needed some guidance. I needed some accountability friends. Yep. Nice. Well, uh, let's go do some picks. But before we do that, uh, mm-hmm. where do people find you online? Uh, so my name is hard to spell, but it's O-L-I-V-I-E-R-L-A-C-A-N, one word, Olivier Lacan. And you can find me on Twitter.com is my website at uh, hi at OlivierLacan.com is my email. Again, you can just like probably if you type in Olivier and Ruby, you'll find me. That's what I do for most people when I can't remember the last name. So I'm on Twitter. I, I speak less on Twitter these days because there's so much stuff going on, but uh, on GitHub as well. Like I do a bunch of open source work. Uh, you can find me there and you can help me fix stuff <laughs> that I'm trying to fix everywhere. <laughs> yep. That's it. Awesome. Well, I kind of want to get you back on and maybe do a part two, but uh, for right now, we'll, we'll go to picks. Cool. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter DevChat in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Uh, well, I was telling you in the, in the pre-call, it's, it's, it was RubyConf last week, or recently. I, I know, we both missed it. Yeah, I feel bad. I miss everyone. And uh, I made a commitment, uh, it's like one of those things, like official commitment to try to do more, try to do Ruby open source while RubyConf was happening because I wasn't there. And usually what I have at RubyConf is a surge of energy to just like com- collaborate with people and fix things that are... Like people bring up at RubyConf, so I I worked uh, I worked on documentation fixes for Ruby, and there's a really usually easy, and they help a ton of people. It's kind of like fixing or answering things on Stack Overflow. They can always help. But um, I think the thing that was really interesting at RubyConf was uh, Koichi Sasada did an update on guilds. Uh, uh-huh. Is the person who wrote the the Ruby virtual machine? He also wrote the garbage collector um, and and a ton of the internal big things in Ruby like right. high, high level important stuff. And he's been working on this, this concept since 2016. I think it was Ruby Kaigi and RubyConf. He announced this idea of basically wrap, to allow more simpler concurrency and parallel programming models for Ruby. So we have threads and we have fibers. Uh, someone I think on Hacker News today was talking about fibers actually. It, it came back up. 
But we don't really have a simple way to think and, and, and act uh, when we want to completely isolate things and have like code running and, and, and kind of like safe contained environment, not touching anything else. So Guilds is kind of this idea of abstracting a little bit further up higher than threads and fibers. And I think the way that it's implemented, even though that doesn't really matter, is, is it uses threads and fibers, but it allows you to have code that will be somewhat truly concurrent or truly parallel, maybe. All, all those issues are complicated. Basically, it gives a utility for people who are, might be tempted to go to Go or to Rust or something that's more uh, highly concurrent or parallelized or something like that. And then not quite need to step out into a different... I know that it can be tempting and I understand why people would do it. And in some ways, microservices can make that easier. But sometimes you might not need that. And, and if we have something like that, uh, it could be really useful. So he, he had a talk that was at RubyConf that you can probably find we can link to. Uh, but I had a blog post that I wrote originally for 2016, which I'll update uh, soon, called Concurrency uh, in Ruby 3 with Guilds. And it's basically a breakdown for people like me who had no idea how any of this stuff works. So it's very beginner friendly, uh, even though it's kind of a brain, uh, it's kind of a headache in a box right. to think about this stuff. But I'm excited that just this morning on Hacker News, someone was like, well, if Ruby was serious about this stuff, like I would consider it. And I'm like, it is. It just takes a lot of work to do stuff like this and you might not know about it. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about this stuff. And very then, cool. I have another one, a quick one, which is, uh, I think it's a hack day project from someone at Shopify called Autoload Reloader, uh, which is going to be apparently merged into uh, Rails 6, like the ongoing development branch for Rails 6, which is replacing the Rails Reloader mechanism, which is kind of like homegrown to Rails. Uh, so the stuff that actually caches your classes when you load your, your Rails app on development and in production. So it just like requires all these files for you. So you never have to write require for stuff that, that is in your gem file, for instance, or like dependencies. Um, so it turns out that in Ruby has a, a facility for this called Autoload. It's just not used by Rails. Rails re-implements it from scratch, even though it doesn't need to anymore, mm -hmm. at least in recent versions of Ruby. And it's apparently more performant in some ways. or just It's just better to have that as a Ruby feature than a, than a feature in Rails, which is commonly a, a source of frustration. Because it's it's non-deterministic in, in uh, development, which means like it can load in different order, right. depending on. So sometimes you load your Rails development environment, it's like something has been removed from the tree, and you're like, "What is a tree, and why has it been removed?" And you don't understand any of that. So that should be gone, perhaps, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm excited that there's progress on that kind of like fundamental problem with like a, a low-level Rails thing that's getting yeah. fixed soon. So that that that's exciting too. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to do a couple of picks. One is we have this problem where we keep losing our Apple TV remotes. <laughs> sure that happens to no one. No, never. Especially when you have five kids. Yeah, you know, my 12-year-old my will misplace it or my three-year-old will misplace it or one of the other kids will misplace it. And will it misplace itself because it's sentient? That, that's what they claim. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, I got... Uh, a tile, um, which is just a little device that goes on like your key ring or yeah, your, yeah. you put in your wallet or something. I've actually lost my wallet a couple of times. So I keep one in my wallet too. And that way I can just, you know, yep. I can call my wallet. I'm one um, of those people. Yeah. But anyway, so I also lost my keys for like three weeks and it turned out one of my kids had cleaned up the living room and shoved it in between the cushions of the couch. 
like down deep into the couch. And you know, so many interesting things in them. Yeah, I I made them uh, clean out the couch. Side note, and lo and behold, my my keys turned up. So anyway, so it has a tile on it too. It had a tile on it before, but the battery had been dying, and so I it wouldn't call it. So yeah, so I'm digging those. Um, They also have like little uh, sticky things. I don't I don't know how to describe them, but essentially the Apple TV remote doesn't really have a good place for you to tile to it. Yeah, so they have they have smaller tiles. You can just stick it on. That's cool. So yeah, so I'm digging that. The person who loses things, I appreciate the spick. Very yeah. Easy. Well, the 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 first tile I got, I got at CES. I go to CES every year just because it's in Vegas, and I get to see all the cool new stuff. So is anyway, it still cool new stuff, or is it is it now stuff that's like as seen on TV almost? You have to be. You have to be picky. <laughs> I'll just put it I, that I thought you were going to say you have to be there to understand. No, you have to be picky. Okay. Um, the other thing is, is that in fact, I, I can I can just talk about CES for a second. <laughs> People are interested, but um, but yeah. So I'm I'm really liking the the tile. Um, I've just watched started watching. I'm just going to do the other pick I was going to do, and then I'll talk yes. about CES for a second. Um, I just started watching Last Man Standing with Tim Allen in it, and it, it is freaking funny. What is it? Is it it's, a, it's a sitcom. Okay. And I'm, I usually don't go for the sitcoms. Like usually a lot of the sitcoms, they're cheap laughs or I just... Right, you know. laugh track stuff. Yeah, but with his, I mean, he's just... The, the turnaround on some of the, the repartee there is just priceless. So. Is, it, is it like a traditional sitcom? Because I just started watching Cheers for the first time ever. And I felt like I was cheated. Like people did not try to sell me on Cheers as much as they should have. It's one of those like I feel uh-huh. like you hear about that like, you see it on old TV sets and you don't think like oh should I be watching the ten dancings in there? It's like I feel like Tim Allen is one of those people where you're like oh it's just such a staple name, uh, mm-hmm. it can't be that good. Right? People would tell me it's not hip anymore, and then you watch it and you're like this is really well well done. Like it's really funny. Yeah, I've never watched Cheers, so I can't compare. Highly <laughs> recommended. Sorry, I didn't mean to bounce a pick off. No, no, it's all good. I, I also never got into Seinfeld, so. I feel like that's a the quiet taste. It's like, yeah. Yeah. So so yeah. So people might be asking if it's similar to those. If you watched Home Improvement, which was Tim Allen's uh, previous show, the the humor's kind of at the same level there. Does it have that '90s feel? That no, no, it's less '90s. Okay, cool. Less '90s. Yeah, but, <laughs> but yeah, pretty darn funny. So that's cool. Uh, I've been enjoying that. Watching, uh, I've I've watched a handful of episodes, but I've just been laughing my head off. Um, I should throw out another pick too. Um, since you're in France, um, I, I missed the World Cup in June. Oh, that was so good. I, I know that France won. Mm-hmm. I don't really know much of the rest of the outcome other than the two final teams. I don't really remember, honestly. This is one of those like fever dreams where you forget, uh-huh. like, it, it was so intense. You're like, was this real? Does this happen? I do remember dancing with like a thousand people on the on like on the Champs Elysees after because I went out with a friend and we just like I'm sure it was insane. I just remember th- it's one of those events where you you try to understand why people how do people get so excited, but they just do. Mm-hmm. And you could just be a, a you know cranky pants naysayer on the sidelines, and it's true. I don't love sports that much. I really don't. But it's so beautiful to see people happy, especially in times where they're not super happy all the time. Yeah. That, yeah, it's good. That's good. Well, the other thing is, is there's so much out there that divides us. Mm-hmm. Go out there and you're dancing on the Champs-Élysées. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if the person next to you agrees with you on 
to nope. anything else. <laughs> no, as long as they're just like, you yeah. know, they're in rhythm. It's good. <laughs> they yeah. can try. And, and I kind of understand some of it. I, I was in Italy in 2000 when uh, Italy beat France for the Euro. We're, I'm going to stop the call right away. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it was the same thing. We, we, were, we were like two blocks from our, our flat. And it took us about a half hour to get home or more. Oh, God. Yeah, because people were just France. They they were out in the streets. Uh-huh. Just yeah, yeah. The Italians are really cranky this year. Like all my Italian friends in Paris. There's lots of uh, uh, like Italian immigrants in France specifically because uh-huh. Italy's economy is not super hot right now. Right. No, I'm not drawing any connections to them beating us, but this is what happens when you beat France. So they, <laughs> that that's what happened yeah, back then. And then yeah, they were all years. Yeah. So uh, some of our friends, like people we went to, to, to eat with my, fa- my family for like 20 years, 30 years now, they closed down their restaurant the day of the finals, even though they're French Italians. Like, uh-huh. you know, they, they were just so salty that because Italy didn't even make the qualifiers. No, they didn't qualify. Yeah. I, was, I was sad. I usually root for USA, Italy, and England. Wait, where is France in that list? <laughs> I, I think they're somewhere past Mexico. but. No. Yeah. Yeah. It, the nice. If you thing said is, Brazil. I would have been like, okay, well. Yeah, I didn't even get to my pick yet. That's the funny thing. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. Um, but uh, we we cut the cable a while back and uh, picked up Sling, mm. uh, Sling TV. Um, and uh, anyway, if you get the blue package, you can get all the Fox Sports, which is where all the soccer plays here in the U.S. Oh wow. Okay. And so I upgraded my subscription because. My wife wanted all the stuff on the orange plan, which is a different set of channels. And you can do orange, blue, or orange plus blue. So I just upgraded it to orange plus blue. Does it change color when it's orange plus blue? Or is it just like... No, they just merge your channel list. It's, uh, anyway. But yeah, so... That joke. So yeah, so what that allowed me to do is it counts as a cable subscriber when you go on Fox Sports. And so then I could go watch all the replays. So um, I just started at Group A. There weren't any teams in Groups A or B that I was that interested in watching play. So I've watched um, France advance from the uh, group play. Um, Group D had Croatia in it, and I know that they went to the final, so I want to watch them. And then I'll probably watch Mexico and England, since USA and Italy aren't in there. And then I'll just watch all of the elimination rounds. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, there's, I'm just there was some really good. I mean, it's it, I'm one of those bad Sunday players, uh, players, watchers. Like I just I watch when it's a good game or it's just like a, a high state game. I'm not a good fan, definitely. But no, it, it's all good. <laughs> some of those games were really good. I, yeah. I even for someone who doesn't like sports or doesn't uh-huh. like soccer or football or anything, like just this is impressive. Some of those were really yeah. impressive. It's so funny cuz people are like and my dad uh, we used to razz each other because he he watches baseball, which uh, I you can also watch paint dry, but uh, <laughs> I was about to say what is razzing? Or like what? I don't know that expression. Yeah, we we used to give each other a bad time. Okay, and then and then he tell me, well, at least I'm watching a real sport because I watch <laughs> soccer, right? So anyway, but uh, yeah, so it's it. My my brothers are really into football, and I'm just like. <laughs> The only the only American football worth watching is college. Like the NFL is boring. Anyway, so mm-hmm. now I'm now I'm off on another tangent. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I feel like you deserve a tangent after I've had like fifteen thousand tangents. No, it's all good. So anyway, uh, my pick is uh, Sling TV Blue Plan and uh, Fox Sports. 
because that's where that stuff is. But anyway, so CES, real quick in a nutshell, since I blew all my time talking about soccer, which I could continue to talk about for another hour. So when I go to CES, I usually book an Airbnb way in advance. Mm-hmm. One year, I actually had the condo owner cancel on me a week before CES. And you have to realize that hotel rooms, like the the bad hotel rooms in the bad part of Vegas, are still like $200 a night. But yeah, usually they're pretty good. And then if they realize I could get more for my you know, Airbnb or my VRBO... Uh, when I book through VRBO, I've never had any of them cancel on me. And I think VRBO cracks down on them harder if they do it's that. It's more professional. So, yeah, usually. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I, I usually book through there. I usually drive because I live just south of Salt Lake City. And so it's a five-ish hour drive. And so I have a car. Right. So I could just I could drive to the event back. Because it's such a huge city. That's the thing that I remember from being in, in Vegas. This is this massive city. You can't possibly just be on foot and just like hopping around. Well, you you can if you're staying on the strip. Right. And you're just because the because yeah, part of the convention's on the strip. And so you just walk to the Venetian and then mm-hmm. you take the shuttle over to the convention center. So I wind up just parking at one of the other casinos on the strip and then just walk over. Mm-hmm. And that works out pretty well. If you park at Venetian, it will take you two hours to get your car out of there after after it each night. So that's another tip. I usually go park at, like I said, one of the other casinos. Mm-hmm. Some of them make you pay to park now. They didn't used to. So you just have to figure it out which ones don't. That's annoying. Yeah, it's super annoying. It's it's stupid. It's like because people aren't giving you enough money when they gamble, right? Right. Yeah. They give free booze. I don't understand why they can't do free parking. Yeah. But anyway, it's it's a ton of fun. The other thing that I figured out last year is that, and, and I need to do that here within the next week, is I, I basically skim the list of uh, exhibitors and then I pick and choose the technologies I want to go look at. Because otherwise what happens is, is you walk through the convention center floor, mm-hmm. you wind up lost in iPhone case land yeah, and stuff like that. Or you'll wind up seeing a technology where like, yeah, it's brand new. And I'm like, no, it's been around for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to pick like actually emerging technologies you're interested into. Like yeah. stuff, stuff that's actually, oh, this is really cool. Someone's doing a new version or like yeah. applying this new thing in a really cool way. Yeah. Some of, some of them have press teams that'll reach out to you. You still have to be picky. And then I tend to like to walk through like the stuff in the halls that have the emerging technologies. Go look at the smaller booths they're scraping and they're hungry and they usually have interesting stuff, but they didn't have a huge budget to go drop it on right. massive space. So anyway, that's basically my, uh, my thing. I also tend to uh, have a bag with me with, you know, some equipment to record and stuff, but I'll actually just stop at Walgreens and just pick up a handful of snacks instead of buying food at the convention center. Cause it's so incredibly it, overpriced. Yeah. It's overpriced and it's crowded. Like you'll you'll go buy food at the food court in there and you'll wander around for a while looking for a place to sit down and eat. I feel crowded at an eight hundred people conference, so I feel like I, I couldn't yeah, I couldn't survive one of those. It's it's and crazy. Like that scared of people. It's just like so much people, so many people. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of how I do it. Good to know. So I'll have videos up on YouTube. I recorded videos last time and I don't think I ever published them, but maybe I'll publish them right before this. Here's what they had last year. <laughs> <laughs> anyway really well cool. I'm going to jump off cool. thanks for coming that's a pleasure thank you so much bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly the world's fastest CDN deliver your content fast with Cashfly visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more <laughs>